Hey, you know what? Just like you, I love true crime. I love it so much, I started a podcast called Once Upon a Crime. On that podcast, I give you a new true crime case every week in a storytelling style. In my new podcast, Let's Talk About True Crime, I've decided to give you a little taste of something different. Because you see, I love to discuss true crime with others, and I don't get a chance to do that often enough. Now, I know you have plenty of true crime podcasts to choose from, many in a discussion-style format. I mean, you can take your true crime with a beer, or a martini, or a glass of wine. But until now, you weren't offered true crime and tacos. And really, what could be a better combination? But seriously, I started this new podcast because I want to talk about the things you want to talk about. Each episode, I and a featured guest host will share, review, and discuss everything true crime. The only prerequisite is that they love true crime and tacos. So take a seat at the table and let's talk about true crime. Subscribe today. Search for Let's Talk About True Crime on your favorite podcast platform. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Bad Sports. And this time I have another story about a horrific crime that occurred at a sporting event. A summer day spent outdoors participating in a sports game should produce nothing but good memories of enjoyable times. But unfortunately, a spirit of competitiveness can sometimes bring out the worst in people. In June 2013 in Brazil, a group of young men gathered to play a pickup game of soccer when a disagreement over a referee's call descended into a violent and bloody altercation. One note for you and then a warning. I've done my best to pronounce people and place names somewhat correctly in this episode. However, as I do not speak Portuguese, I'm sure my pronunciations are far from flawless. Please forgive me. Now the warning. This true crime story is one of the most gruesome I've reported on thus far. It really is almost not to be believed, but it's all true. Listener discretion is definitely advised. This is Chapter 3 of Bad Sports soccer brawl in Brazil. Soccer, or football, as it's known in the rest of the world, is the world's number one sport. A comprehensive Nielsen survey conducted in 2017 reported that 43% of people in 18 countries consider themselves to be soccer fans. Basketball scored as the second most popular sport at 36%. Thailand, Chile, Portugal, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates scored the highest number of soccer fans, with almost 80% of their populations stating that they were very interested or interested in the sport. Over 50% of the population in countries including Mexico, Spain, South Africa, Italy, Brazil, Germany, Russia, the UK, France, and Hungary also reported being soccer fans. Only about 25% of the U.S. population that was surveyed said that they followed the sport. Since the sport is referred to by most of the world as football, including Brazil where my story takes place, I'll be referring to this sport as football for the rest of the episode. The FIFA World Cup is the world's ultimate football competition. The 2018 World Cup, held in Russia, 
was watched by over three and a half billion viewers. That is more than half of the world's global population over the age of four, according to official audience data. That's incredible. And fans often pledge their loyalty to one specific football team that they root for above all others, usually a team from their country or region. The sport has been played in some variation for centuries, with the English squaring off for pitch battles between rival villages as far back as the 13th century. It's no wonder, with these long-standing regional ties to sports teams that locals identify with, that deep feelings and loyalties would endure. But these deep feelings can sometimes become problematic when excited fans are combined with large crowds, alcohol consumption, and rampant nationalism. Over time, larger and larger stadiums sprung up to hold the large numbers of football spectators. These venues then became more difficult to police, and more clashes began occurring between rival fans. Beginning in the 1960s, the UK became known for incidents of violence at football matches. A term for these violent confrontations was even coined. They were known as football hooliganism. In 1974, a Bolton Wanderers fan got into a brawl with a Blackpool fan and stabbed him to death during a second division match in Lancashire, England. The increase in this type of violence at matches resulted in more safety measures being taken in that country, including crowd segregation with fences erected around bleachers to keep rival fans apart. In 1975, Leeds United fans, upset by a call on the field at the European Cup final, became destructive both inside and outside of the stadium, throwing objects and ripping up the stands and damaging cars and businesses nearby. Then in 1985, one of the worst disasters in football sports history occurred when Juventus and Liverpool fans clashed at Heisel Stadium in Brussels. Fans of the two teams were separated into different sections to discourage fights, but sections X and Z were only separated by a chain-link fence, with the rival fans on either side. Objects were thrown at each other over the fence before the first kickoff of the game even began. When the fans then broke through the barrier to get at one another, others began to flee to a neighboring section of the stadium to escape the brawl. But the old crumbling stadium could not take the stress on the terrace and collapsed. 600 people were injured and 39 people killed, when they were either crushed against a perimeter wall or were trampled upon by panicked and fleeing fans. As a result, several top officials, including a police captain and 14 Liverpool fans, were convicted of manslaughter. English football clubs were banned from European competition for five years. Liverpool was banned for six. But English fans were not the only ones responsible for violence at these sporting events. There are far too many for me to account here, but I'll give you examples of a couple. I've included a link in the show notes if you want to read about other incidents. In France of 2001, fighting broke out between Paris Saint-Germain and Galatasaray fans, a Turkish team. 50 people were injured in the fighting, with several arrested and charged with assault, weapons violations, and racism. In 1998, after a FIFA World Cup match between Germany and Yugoslavia, a police officer was so badly beaten by German fans that he suffered brain damage. After Mexico lost to Germany in the World Cup in 1998, Mexican football fans rioted, clashing with police, and dozens of fans were injured and some were arrested. Most of these reported incidents of football hooliganism occur in large stadiums or venues between fans of rival teams from different countries. 
but the story I'm about to share with you occurred in one small neighborhood on a dusty pitch during a friendly pickup game. The players were neighbors and even friends. A referee's call would lead to an argument that would ultimately descend into one of the most brutal acts of violence to ever occur at a football match. Otavio da Silva Cantaniere, age 19, lived in the city of Pio Doze, located in a remote section of northeastern Brazil. It was home to about 22,000 residents, most employed as farm workers, fishermen, or truck drivers. Otavio was somewhat short in nature, thin and wiry and quick on his feet. He was friendly to his neighbors and generous with his friends. He was often seen riding through the neighborhood on his bike, dressed in a tank top, athletic shoes, and wearing a pair of football shorts, replicas of those worn by players in the Premier Leagues. He was a fan of Fluminense, Rio's pro football club. Otavio lived with his father, brother, and sister. He worked to help support his family while also attending his third year of high school. He awoke every morning to work herding cattle and then went to a second job to cut down trees used for fences. Nights were dedicated to attending classes and studying. But the weekends were for playing football. Whenever he had free time, Otavio rode to nearby neighborhoods to join in pickup games. On Sunday, June 30, 2013, he was preparing to do just that. Picking up his cleats and a backpack, he started out the door and mounted his bicycle. His younger brother, George, jumped on to catch a ride with him to the neighborhood of Centro de Mayo, where he knew a few boys and young men often gathered for an impromptu match. Just a couple of days earlier, Otavio's aunt had asked him not to travel to other neighborhoods to play football. She was worried that even in the remote part of the state of Marano, where they lived, he could be targeted as an outsider by ruffians. Otavio had told her not to worry. He had friends where he was going, and he'd be fine. She had reason to worry. Brazil's urban centers like Rio and Sao Paulo have high murder rates and a reputation for violent crime. Brazil overall has been rated as the seventh most violent country in the world. Homicides in Brazil are solved at the rate of only 5 to 8 percent, as compared to 65 percent in the U.S. As police work was concentrated in Brazil's large urban cities, violent crime increased in the countryside. The murder rate in Maranhão more than doubled in the first decade of the millennium. The number of residents in the state far surpassed the number of police officers available to patrol these remote areas. A police officer in Pio Doze was quoted as saying, Unfortunately, we are behind in everything in Maranhão. Police cars, officers, infrastructure, phones, we don't even have radios. While Otavio brushed off his aunt's warnings, he did know from personal experience how fragile life could be. His mother, Velida, had been killed two years earlier. She'd been hit by a truck while riding her bicycle along the highway. The driver was said to be under the influence of drugs. Both drug and alcohol abuse were rampant in Marano, a common escape, it seems, in areas of high poverty and subsistence living. Otavio, his family said, was deeply affected by the death of his mother and changed afterwards, becoming quieter and more serious. Then another traumatic incident occurred in Otavio's life. In February, he had been attending a carnival celebration in town when he was stabbed by a man who'd mistakenly identified him as an enemy. He'd been wounded in the shoulder, arm, and behind his ear. He had fortunately escaped with his life, but had required several stitches and remained in the hospital overnight. After this time, Otavio's friends said that he began carrying a knife, 
often tucked into his belt or in a pocket. He was scared after that incident, a friend said, explaining the knife. But others say that many men in the countryside often carry knives to use at work, to cut down and peel a pineapple, or, of course, for self-defense. They had to be prepared to defend themselves because of the lack of police presence in their underserved towns and villages, residents explained. Doctors and nurses in Marano say that emergency room visits to treat stab wounds was a common occurrence. On that warm Sunday when Otavio arrived at the large lot surrounded by palm trees used as the local soccer pitch, several men and boys were already engaged in a pickup game. One of them was 30-year-old Josemir Abru. Otavio and Josemir were friends, despite being a decade apart in age. They had recently played on the same team, winning a neighborhood championship and celebrating afterwards with beers at a local pub. Josemir had even visited Otavio in the hospital in February after he'd been stabbed. Josemir hadn't planned to play in the pickup game that afternoon. He was only in the neighborhood to visit his sister, whose home was located close to the field in Centro Mayo. He resided in the city where he worked at the post office. He was married and had one son. Josemir had epilepsy, but didn't let that stop him from playing football. There were times, however, that he'd become tired or stressed and would experience the seizure on the field. The other players were aware of this and would act quickly to help their friend the few times this had occurred. Josemir was described as an aggressive player who could sometimes become heated during a match. Although he took prescribed medicine for his epilepsy, his mother warned him to keep calm to help avoid having seizures. Even so, players knew that sometimes tempers flared during a match and words might be exchanged or a physical confrontation might even occur. When this happened, the men would be separated until everyone calmed down and play could resume. But on that Sunday, most of the players were friends and neighbors out for a friendly match to round out the weekend. When Otavio arrived, he was put in to play defense. Then about halfway through the game, he twisted his ankle and was then recruited to referee the second half of the game. After about 15 minutes into the second half, Otavio issued a yellow card to Josemir. A yellow card is a penalty issued to a player as a warning. If a red card is issued, a player is taken out of the game. Why the yellow card was issued to Josemir is a subject of some debate. Some say that Otavio made a call that favored his brother George, who was playing on the opposing team, and Josemir began complaining loudly. Others say that Josemir touched the ball with his hands or kicked the ball too soon after a halt in play or that he was playing dangerously. Whatever the infraction... Josemir objected and began daring Otavio to give him a red card. He said he would refuse to leave the game unless Otavio's brother George was also removed. The argument became more heated with Otavio and Josemir screaming in each other's faces. George would later report that he walked his brother to the sidelines and Otavio seemed to have calmed down. The conflict appeared to be over and no one thought anything further would result from the temporary flaring of tempers between the two men. Why things began to escalate again then is unclear. Whether Josemir continued arguing with Otavio or the other way around, insults began to fly. Otavio called Josemir a clown. I'm not sure what the word in Portuguese is, but I know that there's a word in Spanish that roughly translates to clown, which is very insulting and demeaning, especially when it's uttered by one male to another. Josemir then used the most offensive of insults, calling Otavio's deceased mother a whore. 
That was the spark that quickly ignited a violent physical altercation. Otavio advanced on Josemir, and Josemir, bigger than his rival, punched and kicked at him. Otavio fell to the ground. When he picked himself up, he was holding his knife in one hand. He came at Josemir quickly and stabbed him twice in the left side, once in the ribs, and once in the chest. The five-inch blade of the knife struck Josemir in the heart when it entered his chest. A man who lived across the road came quickly after hearing the shouts for help. Josemir, bleeding and unconscious, was driven to the hospital in the man's car. He would die before they reached the hospital. Now the crowd descended on Otavio. Several men grabbed him and held him. One retrieved a rope. Someone began trying to phone the police, but they knew it would be some time before they would arrive, if they came at all. The bystanders, knowing that murderers often escape justice in Brazil, decided to hold Otavio by force until the police could arrive. Otherwise, some later said, he could have escaped and run away, and they feared the police wouldn't have done much to try and find him. Otavio was tied with the rope to a tree. Several calls were made to the Pio Doze police, but witnesses said that they just reached a recording saying that the officers were outside of the service area. Word began to spread about the stabbing in the field. More people came from the neighborhood. Reportedly, Otavio, becoming more afraid of the growing mob, pleaded with the men holding him to take him to the authorities. Why didn't this happen then? It may have been because no one there had a vehicle to transport him in, or perhaps because many of the men had been drinking all afternoon and were either not thinking clearly or were simply too keyed up by the violence they had witnessed or the crowd shouting for revenge. They would not let the young man go, and the police, after almost an hour, still hadn't arrived. It's possible that the situation was escalated when someone reported back that Josemir had been pronounced dead at the hospital. Luis de Souza, a 26-year-old who'd grown up with Josemir and was close to his family, was also present at the game that day. By his own admission, he'd spent the day drinking cachaça, a sugarcane liquor made up of 39% alcohol content by volume. D'Souza said he'd drank two to three bottles that day. He'd participated in the game earlier in the afternoon, but had become too drunk to continue and was removed. He'd left the pitch, but had hung around still drinking. Now, the very drunk man decided he needed to avenge his friend. He began advancing on Otavio. Otavio's brother George tried to intervene, but was threatened by the crowd, and he left on a friend's motorcycle to try and summon help. D'Souza attacked Otavio, raising his liquor bottle and smashing it over the young man's head. He then grabbed a wooden stake he found on the ground nearby and began beating him on the head with that as well. At the same time this was taking place, another man, 31-year-old Raimundo Marsal, was driving past the field on his motorcycle. Seeing the crowd gathered, he asked a young boy what was happening. He answered that Josemir Abreu had been stabbed and his attacker was tied up in the field. Marsal had also been drinking heavily that day. He'd been at the bar all afternoon and had drunk kasasha, wine, and beer. He said he'd been very drunk when he arrived at the field. By this time, Otavio, bludgeoned by the first man, was lying on the ground. Marsal rode his motorcycle onto the field and ran over his body three times. A third man, Josimar de Souza, who'd been drinking with Marsal at the bar, then stabbed Otavio in the throat. But this wasn't enough revenge for the bloodthirsty mob. Francisco de Souza, 
brother of Otavio's first attacker, showed up at the field carrying a sickle with a curved blade. Francisco, 32, was said to not only be drunk but high on drugs. He must have been to do what happened next. He began swinging the sickle from side to side, threatening anyone who got in his way as he moved towards Otavio's broken body lying on the ground. Standing over the body, D'Souza swung the sickle, decapitating Otavio. He then began to attempt to quarter the body. He sliced off both legs with the sickle and then tried to chop off both arms. Then, according to a woman who lived across the street from the field, D'Souza picked up Otavio's head like a trophy. As she watched, frozen in horror, he took the head over to a post attached to a chain-link fence and placed it on top. He walked away from the field, making it as far as the road, before he fell down drunkenly on his ass where he remained sitting in the middle of the road for some time. Police still had not arrived, although multiple people had called for help. Instead, word reached the hospital about the horrific violence that was taking place in the field. A nurse, Almerinda Sousa, told that a dismembered body was lying in the field, had the presence of mind to bring plastic bags. An ambulance was dispatched and was followed by another nurse, Jane Cantillade, who happened to be Otavio's aunt. The nurses and ambulance driver also called the police, who still had not arrived. After waiting for half an hour, they called again, and this time reached an officer. They asked him if he was on his way to record or photograph the bloody crime scene so they could remove the body. The officer told her to, quote, film it yourself, unquote. She took out her cell phone and did so before gathering up the body for removal. Jane Cantignate removed her nephew's head from the fence post. She was distraught and later said she couldn't understand why someone would do something so horrible. He was already dead and they had the revenge, she said. Why did they have to cut him up the way they did, she weeped. As both victims' bodies lay in the hospital that night, police still had not bothered to come to question witnesses, visit the crime scene, or view the bodies. No autopsy was conducted. A video was taken by the hospital of Otavio's dismembered body as it lay on a gurney. Nurses then sewed the body back together, washed it, and returned it to his family for burial. Cozumir's body was similarly returned to his family that evening as well. It wasn't until the next morning that the regional police chief finally learned of the murders in Centro Mayo. Around noon, he drove into town to finally begin an investigation. Evidence from the crime scene by now had disappeared. Otavio's knife was never found. His brother George, traumatized, went into hiding, staying out of town with a family member. It wasn't until much later that his witness statement was recorded. The police chief then visited the hospital and discovered that no autopsy of the bodies had been performed. The doctor at the small hospital had not been on duty on Sunday night and so had not examined the bodies. The next day, he'd written a belated report based on the video and photographs taken by the nurses. The actual cause of death could not be determined, which the chief knew could greatly hinder him from arresting and or being able to convict anyone for the murder of Otavio Cantagnari. Four suspects were identified after interviewing witnesses. 
Luis de Souza, the man who began the attack on Otavio by hitting him with a bottle, was tracked down two days later at his home 50 miles away. He would say that he was drunk and didn't remember much from that day. He knew that he had hit the young man with a bottle of rum and a piece of wood. He said if he hadn't been drinking, it probably wouldn't have happened, and he was remorseful for his actions. He was charged with homicide. Raimundo Marsal turned himself into police a few days after the murder and signed a confession stating that he'd run over the victim three times. He would later hire a lawyer and recant, saying that he had not run him over but merely, quote, bumped him with the front tire, unquote. The third man, Josimar de Souza, who stabbed Otavio in the throat, fled the jurisdiction and went into hiding. Francisco de Souza also fled. The man who'd carried out the grisly decapitation and dismemberment of Otavio Cantanare was tracked doggedly by the police chief and his men for months. Sightings of the wanted fugitive came from all over, and they followed up on every lead. To date, he has still not been caught. Luis de Souza and Raimundo Marsal both face up to 30 years in prison if ultimately convicted. The field that once held the happy laughter where football fans participated in pickup games now remains mostly vacant. A month after the murders, a game was organized by Centro Mayo residents, trying to put the horrors of that day out of their minds. Their small neighborhood had been villainized in the press as being inhabited by a vicious mob. They wanted to prove that they were normal, peace-loving people, not monsters. Calling the game a peace match, Half of the field was used by a few players who played a friendly game. Both players and spectators alike avoided the other side of the field, the place where Otavio's broken body had soaked the ground with blood. The field now is mostly occupied by young children who kick the ball around or play tag in the cool of the evening, supervised by watchful parents. Most of the children are too young to be aware that their playground had been used as a killing field just a few years earlier. Were these two tragic deaths simply a result of quick tempers that turned violent, or was there more at play? Otavio seemed to react without thinking after his mother's memory was insulted by Josemir. Josemir did possess a quick temper, his friends later said. He was always fighting with us, one of his teammates reported. But these were mostly verbal arguments, and while they sometimes got heated, someone could always step in to calm him down. Others pointed out that if Otavio hadn't been in possession of a deadly weapon, perhaps all that would have occurred may have been a couple of busted lips or black eyes. The men probably would have cooled off and maybe even laughed it off over a beer, they speculated. Maybe Otavio wouldn't have carried a knife at all if he himself hadn't been attacked just months earlier. Friends say that he became fearful afterwards, perhaps suffering from post-traumatic stress. This may have caused him to automatically reach for a weapon and without thinking in an instant, take in the life of someone he considered a friend. Witnesses say that Otavio was remorseful immediately afterwards. As the crowd began to gather around, some people began to yell at him, questioning him as to why he'd done such a thing. He answered that it had happened so quickly he hadn't even known what he'd done until it was too late. He asked them for their forgiveness. 
Others blame the police for not coming to de-escalate the situation before a second victim lost his life. That Sunday, Pio Doze's police chief was on vacation, and two officers had been left to patrol the area. The patrol officers would later claim that they were working in another neighborhood that was not covered by cell phone service, and they had not received the calls for help from Central Mayo. However, this has been disputed with several residents and the nurses saying that they had reached the officers by phone. They just never showed up to help. Otavio had been tied up for at least an hour, witnesses said, before he was hit with the bottle by Luis de Souza. If the officers had responded quickly, they could have gotten there in time to save him. We also can't discount the role that drugs, and especially alcohol, played in the final tragic outcome. We don't know exactly who struck the fatal blow to Otavio. He could have been dead or dying after he was bludgeoned or after being run over. There's no way to determine this since no autopsy was performed before his burial. But it's clear that all the men that took part in his attack had been drinking heavily and at least one of them is suspected of having taken drugs. Finally, I have to bring up one more factor that certainly played a part in the murder of Otavio Cantañade, mob mentality. Only one of the men had a personal connection to Josemir, and even he was not involved in the original fight and had simply returned to the field after hearing about the stabbing. Perhaps driven by the anger of the crowd towards Otavio, Luis de Souza, who already possessed lowered inhibition due to intoxication, attacked him with a bottle. After that, others gave themselves permission to also commit violence against the helpless man. He may have been seen as an outsider, like Otavio's aunt had warned him. He was from another neighborhood, and while he was a familiar face at pickup games, the fact that he was an outsider to them could have made it easier to target him for violence. Mob mentality is a term that describes how a group of people may be influenced to act in a way that they would not normally behave while being swept up in the emotion of a larger group. There is often an us-versus-them view, with one group or individual singled out as worthy of being belittled, blamed, and even attacked. Ironically, this is the same phenomenon that is responsible for a crowd to become violent at sporting events. We've all heard of incidents of rioting by fans after their team loses a championship to a rival. It can even happen after their team wins an important game. Crowds of fans either jointly lamenting their team's loss or celebrating their team's accomplishment can sometimes become swept up in the high emotion of the event. Because there is a large group of fans all experiencing these emotions together, it only takes a few people to light a spark either by throwing a punch or some other act of violence, to create a domino effect that can lead to a very dangerous situation. And that phenomenon is what I'll be illustrating in the final chapter of Bad Sports, when I tell you about a case of mob mentality that led to one of the most strange and outrageous events ever to have taken place at a U.S. sporting event. But that's a story for next time. That'll do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I want to credit a great resource I found while researching this case. The New York Times ran an article in 2013 titled, A Yellow Card, Then Unfathomable Violence in Brazil. It was written by reporters Jerry Longman and Taylor Barnes. It was very helpful in rounding out the story because they were able to interview witnesses, friends, family members, and even the attackers in this story. 
I strive to include cases from other countries, but it's hard to find details written in or translated into English, and this was a valuable resource to help me give you all the complete story. I've included a link to the article in the show notes if you want to read even more details about this case. While you're waiting for that final chapter of Bad Sports, make sure to check out my new podcast, Let's Talk About True Crime. That's Let's Taco, T-A-C-O, about true crime. You can find it on most podcast apps. Look for the Happy Taco logo. On the latest episode just released, my guest host is Brianna from Murder Dictionary Podcast. We discuss the new Netflix film, The Dirt, about the notorious rock band Motley Crue. Besides critiquing the film, we also detail the criminal histories of these bad boy rockers. Also, check out Brianna's podcast, Murder Dictionary, for more well-researched true crime cases. I'm a big fan. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.